Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. So how many of you all went to homecoming in the last two days? Raise your hand. Just own it. All right. All right. About half. Same as, same as last, uh, last service. Uh, some of you maybe participated in some level of homecoming and didn't know it. Uh, my wife. Oh, she, I was going to brag on her. She's not even here. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, wait. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so my, my wife does this church street market thing. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but in the grass lot, uh, all these vendors come in. There's, I don't know how many vendors, but there's a bunch, and they come in, they set up, and we invite the community in. And uh, so now, separate from that, the, the youth used to do a rummage sale to raise money to send kids to camp, right? And, uh, and what I personally liked about it is how I got to know you just a little bit better by the stuff you dumped off here. <laughs> I'd be able to go through your stuff and see what you see as valuable per our conversations. And uh, so we decided um, that we didn't want lice this no, year. So we decided this year that, you know, let's go a different route and just see if we can make the same amount of money, but in a different way. Because CJ, would, well, CJ and me, various times when we had the different jobs, we would, uh, we would spend months making this rummage sale happen. And then we'd make... Uh, about $1,500. Sometimes we would make more. Somebody like donated like big things, you know, like cars or air compressors. And uh, we'd make a little bit more, but typically about $1,500. So they decided to do a hot dog fundraiser this year. And so CJ and I were like crunching numbers at one point. We're like, okay, if we're going to do this about two or three times a year, we want to make about $1,500, you know, but you'd really want to make like $500 uh, each time and that'd be success. So at least if we do $500, that'd be success. And uh, so uh, after the homecoming parade, uh, CJ and the youth had a booth at the at Church Street Market and uh, they sold hot dogs. Check this out. They had a hot dog, chips, and water for five bucks. Wow. Yeah. I'm like, can we do it like every day? Like every Saturday, can we do that? And we're not talking about like, you know, the, the bar hot dogs or whatever, you know, mechanically separated chicken stuff. What we're talking about, Costco hot dogs. Yeah. We would, and what? I'm getting there. No, I, I, I prepared this, CJ. I'll get you the chili, for goodness sake. So I go over there, we commit, we're like, we're going to go buy lunch for the kids there. So we go there, we get the hot dogs or whatever. And, and they're like, hey, do you want a scoop of chili on that? I'm a little penny pincher, so I'm like, well, how much is that? I'm like, it's free. Do you want to skip a chili? I'm like, what world am I living in? Throw on the chili. Get and then I mean, we're even looking at making it more luxurious next year. I hear rumors of chopped onions or something. It's going to be out of control, people. All right? So my, my hope is that as you guys see that happening, that you guys go over there and you buy your hot dogs. This one time we wanted, we were hoping they'd make 500. They made 1,500. So thank you for showing up. Yeah, really cool. Thanks for showing up, supporting those uh, kids at camp. A couple people came and bought their $100 hot dogs, so we appreciate people following through with that promise also. That was pretty cool. So thanks for that, uh, that support. So, all right, so with that now, uh, I do want to get us into our text this morning. Last week, we did Luke chapter 14. This week, we're doing Luke chapter 15. Next week, we're doing Luke chapter 16. They're just doing whole chapters at a time because our, our goal in our Luke series 
is not to go in-depth and look at the details and, and exegete every passage to its fullest extent. It's to go through and get the general idea of what Luke is teaching and saying, so then that we can go into Acts and really see what that church looked like when Jesus ascended and, and what that early church looked like. Um, we realize also that the uniqueness of Luke, which I personally like, is that there's a guy named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, and he had heard about Jesus, heard the good news, and he had said, hey, I want you to go and make sure that I can trust that it's true, the things that I've been hearing. And, and that's something that resonates with me. There was absolutely a time in my life where I knew all the truth because my parents uh, were Christian, and it came to a point in my life where I'm like, hey, I need to make sure what I've been hearing is actually true. This is real. Because I'm not going to change my whole life for something that's not true. I'll still be respectful to my parents and other Christians, but I'm not going to be a Christian if it's just some made-up mythical thing as a, some comfort blanket for difficult times. Well, what I found is that I believe it to be true, actually, and uh, the apologetics around it, as well as uh, the way I've seen God work in this, in this world, and, uh, and I just studied various uh, belief systems, and I, and I came to believe, I believe that the Bible is accurate. I believe that it's true. So because of that, I really believe that there is one supreme God. And that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ alone. So because of that, then, uh, we, we study the Bible and study the Bible, and we're going through Luke. We're in chapter 15. Get there. We're going to read the first two verses and stop a little bit, and I'm going to try to get us out on time, okay? Uh, before we do, though, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, another, another morning to come. There are a thousand things each of us can be doing, and yet we are here. And uh, we need no uh, pats on the back. These are, uh, our offerings are filthy rags in comparison to what we need for salvation. But we are here, and I pray that uh, you would be glorified. I pray that uh, I could be a conduit for your word, and I uh, thank you for allowing me to um, uh, do this work here for you, and, uh, no matter how much of a failure I am day to day. And I pray that we can humbly study the word together, and that we would learn about who you are in this passage here. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Here we go. Chapter 15, 1 and 2. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus' teaching. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even, even eating with them. So let's stop there for a second. Like, what's with... This tax collector, you know, and, and so what I've done and pastors for probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have done is try to take a tax collector and what would have been the sentiment towards them in that time and then find something today that they're like, right? And compare it to some other uh, maybe occupation that we would say is uh, synonymous with sinner. And so we often uh, compare it uh, to, uh, in today's time to tax collectors as well, but I would say that I don't think that's a really good comparison, although there are similarities. And let me explain why. Um, just to go back and make sure that we understand that like, this is a common teaching throughout, or common description of Pharisees and religious leaders throughout Scripture, is that they are, they, they are, they are notorious sinners, and that tax collector is synonymous with sinner, like the, the worst. And so, uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 29, it says, Even the tax collectors agreed God's way was the right way. 
And essentially, it's like, even, even the worst of the worst, they're, they're, they, believe, they began to believe that God's way is the right way. Even the, even the tax collectors. And uh, later on in chapter 7, it says, Jesus was found with the worst tax collectors and other sinners. Instead of saying he's with the worst sinners, so he's the worst tax collectors and other sinners. Like they would name it. So there's something about this tax collector business that winds up the Jew in this culture. In Luke chapter 3, even the tax collectors came to be baptized. That's how powerful John the Baptist's message was. That's how powerful Jesus' message was. As John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, and then Jesus stepped onto that road and continued it. But even, even the worst of the worst were being baptized. They were universally hated for hundreds of years, even before Jesus showed up on the scene. They were seen as Jews who had sold their soul to Rome to buy a franchise, essentially, so then that they could prey on their fellow Jews and extort them for money. Rabbis would not even teach them. Synagogues would not accept their alms. Courts would not accept their testimonies. And people assumed that God would not accept their repentance. So imagine this. I'm going to make a comparison. Uh, there's going to be some of us that are going to feel like the comparison is equal. I'm just going to argue that it's not, but there are similarities. Okay? And that is this. Imagine there's a people group who are persecuted by the government um, because of that people's group belief in, 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 in God. And, and some of us are like, yeah, Brian, you're speaking my language. I'm like, no, there's no people that like, are you know, hanging on Main Street with, on stakes or being lit on fire or being arrested or anything like that. So there's similarities maybe, but it's not the same. And so imagine then that there's this oppressing uh, uh, government on you, and then um, of that people group, they go to that government and they essentially kind of get a franchise so that they can go, and then their business will be extorting their own people um, on behalf of that government. There would be a hatred for them. Like, how could you turn against, and they would say, like, God's people. You're extorting us. You're taking advantage of us. You are literally gaining financially by sinning against us and God. Like, this is the worst of the worst of the worst. So hopefully... That puts into mind how bad these tax collectors and Gentiles were to the, con the, the group of people in this context. Does that make sense? There's similarities. I'm not arguing that. It's just not the same. There's an absolute hatred. So then let's, let's, let's continue. So Jesus told them this story. So now there's going to be two, well, there's going to be three parables together. Two are going to be... Uh, uh, in a literary sense, similar in structure. And then we're going to get to the prodigal son, which has the same point, but a different structure. But the first two are going to have this similar structure. It's going to look like loss, search, recovery, joy. The next two parables, loss, search, recovery, joy. See if you can find those words, loss, search, recovery, found, joy, rejoice, joyful, those kind of things in here. If a man has... A hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and then go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And then when it is found, he, he will joyfully carry it home. 
on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. What we see is loss, search, recovery, joy. There's a man named Philip. His last name starts with an M. I will not attempt it. He was uh, the right-hand man of Martin Luther, actually. This Philip guy said this. Inwoven in the text there is a sweet significance of the passion of Christ. He places upon his shoulders the sheep he has found. That is, he transfers to himself the burden of us. The earliest statue that we can, that we can find from Western Christianity, I don't mean America, but... Uh, Western Christianity uh, is of Jesus with a with a sheep on his shoulders, because it means something. It communicates something. We have uh, this image of a hundred sheep, and there's a shepherd that is supposed to care for and protect these sheep. What is being brought up is. If you are that shepherd and you have a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, what do you do? The good shepherd puts the other sheep in the thicket, if you will, so that they're safe. The idea is you don't put them in a field where predators can go and see them from long away and devise a plan. I don't know if wolves devise plans, but you know they do that circle thing or they howl or do whatever and then they go and eat them. You put them in the woods so that they're a little bit more safe. And then you go after, after they're protected, you go after the one you lost. The not-so-good shepherd says, that's just one. Still got 99. And that's kind of more our approach, probably. Um, Then this good shepherd goes and he searches for the one that's lost because apparently this good shepherd cares for the lost. And when he finds this sheep, it's, it's most likely going to be completely wore, up, wore out, all caught in some bushes or beaten up or malnutrition or something, so much so that it cannot by itself walk itself back to reconciliation with that shepherd. And that shepherd is going to pick up that sheep, and then it is going to walk with the burden of that sheep back to the rest of the flock there. That's the image we get. I don't know if you've ever lost something that you have a lot of, but I don't have sheep, but I've had dogs before. There was, uh, we had a dog who was going to have puppies, and so we called our most reliable vet we know and had him do a quick ultrasound to tell us how many puppies he, she was going to have. And he articulated, <laughs> he's actually in the room right now, so this is fun. He articulated to us that he, he believes it will be about four to six. So delivery time came, and 11 puppies later. <laughs> we're going to take a love offering but for a better ultrasound machine after this. <laughs> no, we just give him a hard time. He, he came, and basically, we wanted to know if she was pregnant. And, and we got an idea of how many puppies, and it ended up being a little like double that. But, so I have all these puppies. Now, um, now, realistically, I'm a decent human being in just like, maybe like just a normal sense. If one of the puppies got away, we would tear the house apart. We'd go all over the neighborhood. We'd, you know, pretend like it knows its name and trying to get it to come or whatever, <laughs> try to find that. 
But I really think if I had a hundred dogs and one slipped away, I'd be like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the good shepherd, though, the one who is, is tasked, these, this is my flock, these are my sheep, one goes a-wandering, does that, does that shepherd care? Absolutely. Let's continue. Let's start at verse 8 now. Or suppose a woman, so just so you know, the beginning of that phrase does be, uh, connect it to the previous, which is connected to that first two verses, okay? So, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp, sweep the entire house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Verse 10 is important. It is unpacking what has just been said in the first nine verses. In the same way, just as if even just one sheep strays, but there's 99 that haven't, when that one that strays is brought back, there is much rejoicing. In the same way, and I have a harder time with this this coin situation, but you lose one coin and you you had ten, you only have nine now. And you search and search and search and you find it, you rejoice, and apparently you invite your friends over. (laughs) I do have a quick two stories about jewelry. Emily wakes up, this is like a couple weeks ago, and she is very saddened because there's an earring missing. And these earrings, from what I understand, don't correct me, from what I understand, these are just like a part of like who she is. They're just always in. And they are earrings that we actually got uh, very early in our marriage. We were very uh, strapped. And so I had went and I had looked from pawn shop to pawn shop to pawn shop to try to find uh, a set of nice earrings for Emily. Long story short, because I, undoubtedly we're going to run out of time. I got those earrings. They've been something that she has worn ever since, and then one's missing. So then we do look for it. I mean, we didn't quite tear the house apart, but we looked for it, and we ended up finding it. And it was a glorious moment. We didn't invite our friends over to celebrate it. But imagine finding that. <laughs> now, there's another one. Uh, imagine now you're like earrings. Whoa, that would be a bummer. Now imagine a wedding ring. Now I don't like telling the story too often because it borders my line of being uncomfortable in church talking about this stuff. But we did have another, it's another dog, unfortunate, another dog situation where Emily would put lotion on her hands at night and the dog would sneak onto the bed or onto next to her and like sneakily lick her land. <laughs> <laughs> Lick her hands. God be gracious to me. Lick her hands. It was kind of like uh, an odd thing the dog did, right? And so, and then after Emily puts the lotion on her hands, before she falls asleep, she reaches over, she takes her ring and puts her ring on her finger. Well, one time, Emily's doing this little process and she takes her ring off. She puts the 
Oshan, that dog gets in there and starts trying to lick her hands. And, uh, and, it, and you're shoving the dog away. It's just like a funny little cute thing the dog does. And then uh, Emily goes to put her ring on, and the ring's gone. And Emily's like, Brian, I think the dog ate the ring. I'm like, Emily, the dog did not eat the ring. It's somewhere. We just need to find it. So we start taking everything, you know, sheets off the bed, you know, doing the, like, shake it, straighten it. Okay, now I'll flip it over. Next one, right? Doing that. Each leaf of the sheets, which are all on Emily's side. And then we look behind the bed and around the bed. We look on the ground and the carpet and everywhere. And then Emily's like, I think the dog ate it. I'm like, Emily, the dog did not eat it. But we decided to be the one that goes after the sheep. So just in case, there's a process we set up in order to uh, search Okay, and recover and then celebrate. And uh, so, which is really unfortunate because whenever, usually you're just like, dog, go outside. And then whenever the dog comes back, you know. But now we're outside with flashlights and stuff. And it's just, it's a difficult situation. Emily did the majority of it. But anyways, there's a point where we're at, I believe, my brother's wedding. And Emily's parents are leaving. And we say, hey, on your way home, can you swing by our house and let the dog out? And they're like, absolutely. Like, there's one thing, though. <laughs> you have to, you know, and I just explain, you guys know how it works, right? You just have to, like, inspect things. certain. And, and, and so I told Emily even, I, I told her, I remember telling her, like, don't even have your parents do that. Like, it's not, that, like, what are the chances that it's going to be that one? Just have them take out to the bathroom and go home. They don't need to be doing that. I kid you not, people. <laughs> They go over there, and I imagine them when they're like, oh, we got to, like, do this. Like, you know, it's been, like, four or five days by now. So. And, you know, the dog goes out to the bathroom. And I can just imagine Emily's dad being like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> he used my toothbrush, but he told me about it. Like, you know, he's decent. So he told me about it, and he actually, you know, did some cleaning for us, you know. So it was recovered, and we did celebrate. Again, we did not invite people over to have a party. But finding something, we can get the idea of, like, losing, like, the, 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 the silver, right? It's trying to get us to attach to losing something valuable and kind of the panic that sets in of trying to find that one thing because there's value even in that one thing, right? There, I mean... Some would maybe over-spiritualize the two parables and say one is that there's care and one is that there's value. And so there's care and value in us in the search, but I don't want to over-spiritualize it necessarily. This is essentially we begin to see the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. Right? We bring Old Testament into New Testament in times where we begin to see the fulfillment of it. right? Because that's important. And we see... Uh, 34, 11, I will search for my sheep and I will rescue them. See it being fulfilled here. Now we get to the prodigal son. In verse 11, it says, to illustrate this point further, right? So there's these links in the chain. Verse 1 and 2 is linked to the, uh, the lost sheep, which is linked to the coins, which is linked now to the prodigal son. One thing we know before we get into the prodigal son, every pastor has preached on this, I'm sure, and one thing we, we know about parabolic literature is that it was used in this culture to bring about usually one primary point. And the reason that is important is because when you tell a story in order to bring about one point, there's going to be other things that you can wrongly take out of it. So you want to catch what is the main thrust of this passage. And so that's what we're going to look at here. We already know the context of it, and that is to illustrate the point further. Right? 
Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time, about the, the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So that's 11 through 16. Here's what we have so far. We have two sons and a father. The youngest son says, Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but I want my inheritance. I want my portion now. I can live better. I don't need you. I don't need this stuff. I just need this little piece of what you're going to give me. I'm going to go live my life the way that I want to live and will be better. So he takes that inheritance and he wastes it on wild living. Upon further research, wild living now is not all that different than wild living then, actually. Okay. We know later it obviously includes prostitutes and includes uh, undoubtedly when there's this wild living, uh, drinking and prostitutes and all this mayhem. And it's not that different than now. So we can wrap our minds around that pretty easily. He blows it all on. And then, unfortunate for him, after he runs through all of his money and blows it, there's a famine. And now in this culture, there are no food banks, there are no uh, food stamps, there's no government assistance. He's literally just stuck now at the mercy of whoever will have pity on him, whoever will have grace on him, whoever will have mercy on him. He goes to this farmer and the farmer says, uh, I'll, 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 I'll bring you on to feed my pigs. So he takes him. And he is in such dire straits, such an unfortunate circumstance that even this nasty stuff that the pigs are eating begins to look good. And I think we can identify with that. It's different circumstances. But if you watch a documentary on those hot, how those hot dogs are made, and you've already eaten, and you've already eaten, you're going to be like, I'm not going to be eating no mechanically separated chicken. I don't need none of that. Well, then you get a little hungry, on a Saturday after a parade, and you walk over and you see some chili over there with some hot dogs, pretty soon you're eating two and a half of those and taking them from your kids. <laughs> now imagine in a very real sense though, legitimate like starvation. It says that he began to starve. And then he's in a place where literally the stuff in these bins that they give like the leftovers of the leftovers or the moldy leftovers to these pigs like he's like that looks good that's a bad spot so he, he begins to think it says he comes to his senses and then what he's about to say is what he thinks is reasonable what he thinks is not even deserves but is hopeful for and what he thinks he doesn't even deserve is this at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against 
both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son, but, but please, right, so he doesn't even deserve this, but please take me on as a hired servant. At least then there'll be some basic necessities maybe met, and I won't die of hunger. And that, I believe, is probably reasonable to know I don't even deserve that. I literally said, Dad, you're not dead yet, but give me a, what you were going to give me when you died, and I'm splitting and then you go and blow it on a wild life. And then you come back, tattered clothes, dirty, thinned out, starving, needing help. You don't deserve to be taken back. You've sinned against the Father. So then this is what happens, verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and what? Compassion, which we see threaded throughout the Gospels. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead, but now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Let's stop there for a second. What is this parable teaching about who our God is. That while if we have a hundred sheep and one went missing, is that sheep really valuable? What about, what about the 99? If you had 10 coins or 10 semi-valuable things and you lost one, do you go look for that or do you, I still have nine. In the same way, go back up to verse 1 and 2, where we have our Pharisees and scribes saying, hey, we're the 99. We're here. We've been trying to obey all this stuff. See, the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders have over time adopted what they believe that you can gain salvation by isolation and segregation in the sense that if we don't associate with them and there's a big enough gap between us and them, we will make ourselves holy by physically separating ourselves because spiritually we can do nothing about it. So what we will do is we'll physically separate and we will be better than everybody else. We will be righteous and we will have favor with the Lord. Then Jesus comes claiming to be God and man, the promised Messiah, and then they're like, and you're over here with them. That's, that's what's happening in their world. We can look back and we know a bit about who God is and who Jesus is in the redemption plan because we have the New Testament. They're looking at this saying like, we're the ones over here. Why are you worried about the sick? Why are you worried about the one? We're the 99. Come celebrate us. Spend time with us. You already have us. And what Jesus says is this. He says, there is a tremendous celebration for those who were once lost, dead in their sin, that have been found and have new life. And our, maybe there's a part of us that we can identify a bit 
with the Pharisees, Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders. And that we're like, yeah, that's a good point. How come there's not angels celebrating in heaven for me? And there's maybe a couple answers. One of them would be they did. When you placed your faith in Christ, you repented of your sins. There was celebration. And then we, being a little late to the party, but in, the, in, in an okay way, when they're baptized, right, we celebrate them. That's why we clap at baptisms, because it's symbolizing something that already happened. And for goodness sakes, if the angels are going to celebrate in heaven, we can celebrate here when we see it symbolized here. We're symbolizing that somebody is buried with Christ in his death because we were dead in our sins and then we were raised to new life and we have new life in Christ. And so we celebrate that because it's only provided through the work of Christ on the cross. And so, yeah, we celebrate that too. And I don't think that as we raise somebody out of the water, people are like, yes. Like, you know, we're excited. We're like, let's pray for this man. Let's pray for this woman. And I don't think there's somebody, somebody in the back who's a redeemed follower of Jesus that is really bent on, well, I mean, what about me? I mean, I've been, I've been a follower of Jesus for 10 years. Nobody's celebrating that. I'm like, we did. You're part of the family. You have a reward now that you don't deserve. There's something special. The Lord's heart longs for those who are lost. Like we see throughout Scripture that Jesus longs for the sick. He longs for the lost. That's why he goes and he talks to people who are shunned from the whole community because of sickness. Prostitutes who people didn't want to be around. Tax collectors. Because he was on a mission to have them repent of their sins and turn to God and be the one that was lost that is now found. The one that was not reconciled and is now reconciled. And what I believe, if we walk away from Luke chapter 15 with something, we have to walk away with knowing that God in his plan of redemption has a heart, a mission, a command to go after the lost. And recently, we've been experiencing that in various ways. A couple ways. If somebody within our congregation begins to wander or gets lost, we go after them. We chase down the one. The other way, this city is going to keep growing. And whether you like it or not, I do believe people are just going to keep showing up here. I mean, it's hard to resist the best church in Amherst County. Okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, there are wonderful churches here. We're just one of, one, one of, one of the churches here. So people are going to keep coming here. So then when people come here and maybe aren't followers of Jesus, they're like, hey, you guys put a lot of pressure on this. All I'm trying to do is figure out who this Jesus guy is. Do I actually believe it? We welcome you in. You guys will welcome them in. And when somebody comes up here and they repent of their sins and then we symbolize it in baptism and we applaud them, we're not really applauding them, right? We know we have no works in our hands for it. We're praising God for redeeming another. Our God is one that chases after the lost. He cares about the sick. He cares about the unrepentant. Sometimes we look at people and like their sins are so disgusting. They're horrible human beings. I don't even want to be around them. And I don't know if I would necessarily disagree with that. But I think if we read our Bibles, what we see is that God longs for them to hear the good news. And we don't need to get into discussion of soteriology and how about that, how that comes about. Because what this passage is about is that, is that the good shepherd chases after them. And so we welcome 
them in. And then by taking on the same hearts and values of Christ, we, we also care for the lost and the sick and the weak and the needy. And the very foundation, what we believe people ultimately need, is not food or water. What they absolutely ultimately need is a relationship with Jesus Christ that saves. So, for the sake of time, we'll jump down to this quote down here in the conclusion. We're wrapping up, okay? A.W. Tozer in Knowledge of the Holy says this. Because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit because he is holy. It is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. There's something about this loving pursuit of Christ that will be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But what we learn from chapter 15 is that let us not believe we are the 99 and then be confused about why Jesus would care about not the 99 and then realize that at one time we were not the 99 and Jesus came after us. That is how the church is built. And one thing that I've learned probably more recently in my life, or at least have been reminded of, is that we do not build his church. Jesus claimed that. He said, I will build my church. And so we are a part of expediting his plan by the grace of God. We go and we preach the good news and we reflect who he is. And God is the one who redeems. He's the one that changes hearts. He's the one that regenerates. He's the one that that it is not us that fill them. It is the Holy Spirit that fills them. And we just get to be a part of that. And so we do what when the one returns to the 99? There's joy. We rejoice. And... I believe that this is not metaphorical, but literal. I believe that there are celebrations that happen in heaven. And we get to join in that in worship and when one is added to the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you so much as we study this. It just, it's, not just, it's not just another book. It's uh, your inspired word that we stand upon if there's anything we go to to hear the, your words, anything we go to to know who you are, who we are, the condition of us, the redemption plan, it's your word. And we go there and what we see is this tremendously loving, good shepherd. We gain things we don't deserve. We put them in categories of mercy and grace. And there's no gift we've ever received like the one offered of redemption. We, uh, we humbly come to the reality uh, that there is a heaven and there is a hell and what we deserve is hell and your gracious love chases us down and you redeem us, put us in right relationship with you and that burden is on the shoulders of Jesus. We love you and in Jesus Christ's name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.